The Resurrection and Scholarship. I wonder, is there any connection between the two? I just came back to my office after teaching a course for my graduating seniors titled Orthodoxy and Heresy in the First Eight Centuries. The class focuses on the problem of how heresy arose in the New Testament through the age of the great ecumenical councils. It's about the good guys and the bad guys and how one got to be the winner after the fight was over. So the class deals with a number of topics such as how we got our Bible, what we find when we compare the Gnostic and canonical Gospels, what to make out of the varieties of people who called themselves Christians but held widely differing views, how tradition functioned in the early church. It deals with contemporary assessments of the great Trinitarian and Christological controversies of the 4th and 5th centuries, and the kissers and smashers who debated the use of icons in worship and devotion. At the end of the course, we'll talk about the rebirth of orthodoxy we're seeing take place today. I began the course by having students read a book published by Oxford University titled Lost Christianities, The Battles for Scripture and the Faiths We Never Knew. The author, Bart Ehrman, is an avowed skeptic, but he's an absolutely clear and brilliant writer. Ehrman believes that this group called Orthodox became normative in early Christianity as well as today simply because they were smarter and more powerful than the other groups of Christians who lost, people like the Gnostics, the Marcionites, Arians, and many others whom the church called heretics. The heretics had just as much claim to Jesus as did the so-called Orthodox, or what he calls Proto-Orthodox, as if to imply a plurality of orthodoxies in the New Testament period. The book really is fun and easy to read. I enjoy it a great deal but its conclusions are serious and important. If Ehrman is right, then we are wrong, dead wrong. And so are all the other Christians who adhere to historic Christian faith, be they Catholic or Reformation Protestants. If Ehrman is right, then a whole list of Orthodox views will have to relinquish their privileged position as Christian truth. We'll need to level the playing field and put Orthodoxy in its place by making it just one of many other equally valid views of the Christian faith. Jesus will no longer be the incarnate Son of God. He will not have died for our sins. He will still be in the grave. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John will need to be supplemented by the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter, and the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. For a Christian response to this book, I have also asked students to read a book titled Fabricating Jesus, How Modern Scholars Distort the Gospels by Craig Evans. Dr. Evans is no less a brilliant and engaging scholar of the New Testament, except that he comes up with precisely opposite views. It's his contention that Ehrman and others like him simply don't have the facts right. So he undertakes a meticulous refutation of their approach by showing that the church's view of Jesus and the Bible is really true to the historical Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John really are trustworthy accounts of the life and teachings of Jesus and shouldn't be lowered to an equal status as the Gnostic Gospels. At one point, Dr. Evans describes Ehrman's views in relation to Ehrman's biography. Ehrman used to be a believer of Christ, in Christ. Uh, he used to believe in orthodoxy with a little O here. When Ehrman was young, he went to Moody Bible Institute, then Wheaton College, which taught the inerrancy of Scripture. After Ehrman did his doctorate at Princeton Seminary in New Testament, he wrote a book on the history of textual variants, and it was then that he ended up as an open agnostic. 
He found errors in the Bible and could not harmonize the stories about Jesus reported differently by Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. So, Ehrman quit believing in the Orthodox faith. Jesus is not the Son of God who died on the cross and rose from the dead. Jesus is pretty much just a moral teacher of righteousness, defined according to whatever flavor of early Christian community you like, be it so-called heresy or whatever else you want to call it. Now, I can't go into all the details and evaluate all the arguments for you here. That's what we're doing in class. But something very moving happened to me this afternoon, and I'd like to share it with you. And it came as a result of a question raised by Bonnie, one of my students. I'd been talking about how our personal lives can impact our scholarship, consciously or not. In Ehrman's case, he grew up Christian and then rejected it because of some of his misconceptions about the nature of Scripture. But then Bonnie said, Dr. Nassif, but what about you? Why do you believe these things? What has kept you going all these years? I paused, thought a minute, and said, Bonnie, that's a very good question, but I'm afraid my answer is not going to be what you think it is. Well, would you mind telling us, she said. I think most of us would be very interested in knowing why you believe the way you do. You've gone through all these years of study and have dealt with these issues we're reading about, so why do you still believe in Jesus? So I gave her my answer, and here it is. Okay, I said, you want to know? So I'll tell you. The one thing that has kept my faith alive through all these years of navigating different scholarly views is an experience I had when I was a young man. I could give you scholarly reasons and rational explanations for what I now believe, but those things simply supported what I had already known by experience, and that experience was the resurrection of Christ. I met the risen Lord. It was real, and it was genuine. When I was 17 years old, the Lord forgave my sins in an unforgettable way and spiritually raised me from the dead. I was a new man, and I've never been the same since. I changed, and I knew it. Christ had entered my life in a new and dramatic way. The resurrection became a living reality in my soul, and because of that, I could deal with the world of scholarship with all its ups and downs, be it orthodoxy or heresy. I experienced what St. Macarius of Egypt called certitude of heart, what St. Gregory Palamas referred to as the energies of God, and it's what St. Simeon, the new theologian, called the conscious awareness of God in the heart. So I told the students, there's a relationship between the resurrection of Christ and Christian scholarship. And here's the point, plain and simple. Once you've met the risen Lord and keep that relationship alive in your heart day after day, you will know more than the greatest unbelieving scholars on earth will ever know. Christ is risen. And because of that, the Lord himself will steady your mind and sustain your will through all your studies. You will not be afraid of truth wherever it may be found or afraid to listen to those who disagree with you because the risen Lord will be undeniable in your heart. You will truly experience the words of Jesus who said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children.
This is Brad Nassif for Ancient Faith Radio.